All right. Pay no attention to. Okay, we'll we'll give it, we'll give this keyboard to Ethan. Sorry, Ethan. Sorry when all these fall down everywhere. Um, hi, everybody. Happy New Year. Yeah, everyone's real excited about it. I can tell. Um, uh, this is. Uh, I'm I'm really I'm really glad to be back with you guys. There are great things. You know, as Mike Kenyon spoke last week, I just heard great things from people about. Um, about that message, about what he was talking about, about the God's covenant love for us. And if you weren't here with us, you can always, as always, you can always download messages from our website and stuff like that. But um, that would be one to definitely download. Is um, it's so great to be able to to um, know that whoever's speaking is going to do a great job when they when they come up here. So very cool. Um, but um, good to be back with you. I I want to I want to highlight something real quickly that, that Kim didn't get a chance to do, which is um, in your bulletin you got a, a little insert that describes a beautiful mess. And beautiful mess is. A series will start next week. I'll kick it off, and then Doug Fields, who many of you know, is one of our teaching pastors here at Mariners Mission Viejo, will teach the next three weeks on parenting and mentoring. So if, if you're at some point going to plan on being a parent, you have been a parent, you know a parent, you have parents yourself, you're going to be part of that first few weeks. But also, in, throughout this whole series, it's about relationships. And fundamentally, the thing that shapes us more than anything else is our relationships. Relationships with God, our relationships with other people, our friendships. If you, have, if you have kids that are old enough to be making bad choices in friends, you worry about that. You, you wonder about that. Because you know it matters. You know that the people you choose so greatly influence you. And there is, um, this is basically a conversation about marriage, sexuality, relationships, and parenting. And, and we want to make sure that everybody gets a chance to be a part of it. It's going to be great. A lot of you have given us a lot of feedback. You've filled out some things that have been really critical to you as we talk about this subject. Some of you have, have really serious concerns about, are you going to say some of these things? Are you not going to say some things? Or who should I bring? I, here's what I think. Um, you guys are such a, you're such a great community of bringing your friends. I mean, I feel like we, we work really hard. All of you work really hard at creating a welcoming community for people who are new. And this would be a great series to bring people to because everybody is impacted by relationships and um, it is something that has a lasting, lasting effect. So I'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, as I said, though, this is the next week we start the series, which means that we take a break from our Outsider's Guide to Jesus series, which we're in right now. So um, we're going to do a big build up and then take a break and then come back to it um, after the series is over. So we're not done with the book of Luke. You're like, wow, I thought we were only in like... Luke chapter 3 last week, now we're done. And no, we're not done. We're going uh, to go through the beginning of, of Luke chapter 4, and then we'll take a break. Um, but the series that we're in right now, The Outsider's Guide to Jesus, is, um, it's a look through the, at the book of Luke. And Luke is a guy, again, if you're new with us, Luke is a guy who is writing about the, who, whoever this person of Jesus is to people who don't have the, who may not have, who were not necessarily eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry. So he's going... I want to make sure that everything about Jesus that is known or people talk about is actually true. And so I'm going to make an account, an orderly account is how he says it, of all of who this person is. So again, if you're new and if you, you were brought here by a friend and you're like not sure about Jesus, you're checking all this stuff out. It's a great series to be a part of just because we're kind of looking at, all right, is Jesus really is who he says he is from a guy who's trying to explain it as clearly as possible. So it's been very, very cool. Um, let's pray and then we'll get into today's message and um, well, let's, let's uh, see what God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we get to um, be together. We're grateful that we get to sing. We're grateful that we even um, we, we get to, to bring whatever it is that has plagued us, bothered us, um, has in some way or another captured us over the past couple of weeks, um, and we get to be able to bring that here. That you receive us with open arms, that there is no limitation on who has access to you, and regardless of our story, our past, wherever we're in right now, wherever our life is headed, that you receive us. 
um, and that you welcome us to you. And Father, we know that you love us too much to leave us the way that we are, that it is in your heart to see our hearts transformed. And so Father, as we, as we continue to look at your word today, we pray that you would bring to us transformation. That in some small way, however we came into this place, we would leave here a little bit different. More aware of your love, more aware of our own need for you, more aware of our weakness, more aware of hope. And so, Father, for just a moment, as we, as we gather and as we're sort of tomorrow begins the real, for sure, everybody back to normal normalness, Father, would you give us a moment that we might know what's in our heart and that we might know um, what needs to be revealed in it. So we just give you a moment of, of pause that you would speak to us in stillness, Father. Father, we're grateful for you and for your love and that you would endure suffering and hardship on our behalf. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, if you want to follow along, your Bible will be in Luke chapter 4, like I mentioned before. If you want to turn there, we'll be there in a minute. If you want to just follow along in your outline, which is in your bulletin, it's folded up, a half sheet of paper. Um, if you want to look on the screen, great. If you want to turn on your, your digital version of the Bible, whatever it is, we're going to be in Luke 4 in a little bit. But as we're doing that... Uh, this is uh, this is a time. Hopefully, you know, for a lot of us, this is a time. Not hopefully, but well, maybe hopefully, this is a time for a lot of us where people, um, you know, they, they make New Year's resolutions. Um, some of uh, you know, some of us we do it every year. Um, some of us we make New Year's resolutions, and they're um, they're secret. We don't tell anybody. I'm this year. I'm gonna. I promise. I'm gonna do something. I'm not gonna tell anybody, but I'm gonna surprise everybody when I do whatever it is. You know, all that kind of stuff. Some of us. How, some of you are like you. 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 How many of you always done it? Like every year, you make your New Year's resolution since you can remember, and you write it down, and you share it, and you're publicly held accountable for your decision. Good. Like two of us. Okay. Great. That's really good. I. You know, I'm one of those people who doesn't. I have secret resolutions. You know, I don't want anybody to know because what if I fail? Then I'll just feel it'll be the double heat. But anyway, I just was looking at this year. I was looking at a few of. Uh, uh, this is according to one, you know, college study, and it's from the prestigious University of, of Scranton, so I don't know how great that is, but I, I'm assuming they're wonderful. But here's their study of the top 10 New Year's resolutions in reverse order. Here they are. Just listen to this. Number 10, more time with family. Number nine, <laughs> fall in love. This, this is the year, 2014, I'm going to fall in love. I am tired of not falling in love. This is the year I'm doing it. I'm falling in love. I haven't really meant it into 2012 or 2013, but 2014, I mean. Okay, here we go. Uh, number eight. This is, this is surprising. Maybe this is because in the Midwest or who knows, but help others in their dreams is number eight. Really? That's, you're that altruistic about your, your resolutions? Number seven, quit smoking. Number six, learn something exciting. I have no idea what that means. What if you learn something and it's not exciting? You fail. Number five. Stay fit. These are people who are already in really great shape. I just want to stay right how I am. Like, this is like perfect. I hate, I hate those people. If that's you, there's other churches around. Number four. Number four. This is a really vague one. I'm sure some, and someone put a microphone from the University of Scranton in someone's face and said, what's your resolution? They said, I enjoy life to the fullest. You just make it up, whatever that looks like. Number three. Spend less. Save more. Hmm. Amen. Okay, number, uh, let's see. Number two, uh, what did I write here? Oh, get organized. Get organized. I say that like about every week. I got, this is the week I'm going to get organized. Next week I'll do that. 
Number one answer, probably you all know this as well. What do you think it is? Lose weight. <laughs> oh, you hated saying that. You could just tell, I oh, lose weight <sighs> every year. Uh, lose weight. There's a number one, number, the number one resolution is to lose weight. Now, right about now, you can tell you have all the specials going on on, the, on TV about how you can join you know, 24-Hour Fitness or LA Fitness for a special you know, New Year's resolution price. And of course, you have all of the late night infomercials about the latest gadget that, you know, it just makes all these promises that are unbelievable. Like if you sit in this chair for six minutes a day, just sit in it. You can watch TV, you can drink a milkshake and eat a hamburger and you will have sculpted abs and just chiseled biceps. Just sit in this chair and you're like, wow, I want one of those chairs. You know, it's electric shocking you. You're sitting there, but you're, you know, you're whatever. But there's all these things. There's all these new devices. There's things. I, I saw one. I saw, I was looking up some of these things. I saw one in, in Korea. They released a, <laughs> it, it, it looks like a, it look, it's, it was like called like the horse rider. And you just li- literally, it's just like a saddle and you sit on it and you just like, it just moves you like you're riding a horse. And it was like, this is so awkward. I mean, you just say, I'm just riding the horse, just burning off the, here I am sitting here getting fit, just riding the horse. I mean, it's like unbelievable, the stuff that they have. I mean, there's so much stuff. And all of them make these outrageous claims, right? This, if you just sat in this chair, if you held this thing, if you took this magic pill, whatever it is, there's something, we just go, there's just no way. And what we look at that and we just say what everybody says and we hear something about this is we just say the words, prove it. You know, really, prove it. <laughs> You're going to say this stuff? you got to prove it. So immediately we go online and look for the before and after pictures of someone who sat in the magic chair for six minutes a day. And we're like, eh, really, they just changed the lighting and that person got a tan. That's all that that is. Really, that's all there. There's no real. But we have this sense about us that says we want to know from an unpaid testimonial. We want to hear from someone or another that this actually works. That whatever outrageous claim is being made has some validation in reality. Now, last week is Mike Todd from, the, from, from Luke chapter, chapter 3. You have at the, at, the, at the end of Luke chapter 3 this genealogy. And it makes an outrageous claim about Jesus. Luke has this genealogy in which he explains there, that with, different than the genealogy which you see in the book of Matthew, that it connects all the way from uh, Joseph and Mary all the way back, which you know, uh, Matthew stops at Abraham. It goes all the way back to, the, to God. That Jesus is in some way or another, this is an outrageous claim. That he's not only a human being, but he's the son of God. That's crazy. That is an outrageous claim. Here's what it says. I just, just to give you a sense of what this looks like, mainly because I like trying to pronounce all these names. In Luke 3, 34 through 38, here it is. This is just the middle of it. There's like a hundred names here. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. I know Mike talked about the covenants last week, but this is, that was a big one right there. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Saruk, the son of Ru, Peleg, Eber, Shalah, Canaan, Arphaxad, which is my favorite name in there, Shem, Noah, Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, or Jared, Mahalalel, which took me four times to try and pronounce, Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, again, we could go through and talk about the stories of what we know from that stuff. By the way, if you're reading in the, um, if you're reading in our daily message, which I know a lot of you guys are, you probably recognize some of those names, like, oh, wow, I've seen, I've seen that name before. I don't know what it means, but there's that guy's name again. I'm sure he was wonderful. Whatever. But there it is. Now, The crazy thing that's said is, Jesus is this person who is the Son of God for all humanity, not just for God's people, the Israelites, but for everybody. This is why you have the Son of Adam and then the Son of God. Now, if that's true, Luke's readers would have been going, that's a pretty big statement, Luke. You're going to have to back that up. We're going to need to see 
how you verify the truth of that thing. Because you can't just go around saying stuff like, oh yeah, Jesus is the son of God and he's also his full human being, unless you back it up. I mean, you have to give some evidence to this claim. I mean, just take, for instance, if you had superheroes, and there's some problems with comparing Jesus to a superhero, but you get the idea here. That you can imagine for a moment, if I said to you, you know, you guys, I actually can shoot laser beams out of my eyes and lift, lift buildings and throw them, and I could fly around the earth, you'd go, but, you know, but I, just, I just never do it. You'd go, you can't. <laughs> I can't. I just choose not to use that power. I mean, you'd be like, what? there's a problem here. There's no way to, ver- I mean, if, if I just said those things, they're empty claims, eventually you'd go, you're going to have to prove that stuff. And Luke is saying about Jesus, he is that amazing, there is this quality about him that is son of God and human being and people go prove it and so what we're going through now if we were going to expect that god was or jesus is going to prove that he is those things the expectation we would have which he does later the expectation that we would have would be that he would like do a laser beam light show there would be healings there would be all kinds of miraculous stuff he would float or levitate or do something or something else would sort of do all these things that's not that's not the way luke chooses to illustrate this reality it's actually really surprising if you think about what he's about to do. The way he shows this, the way, the way Jesus is proven to be this thing that Luke claims that he is. So here's what it says in Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We'll stop right there. Now, you see right there, you have the Holy Spirit mentioned twice. He's full of the Holy Spirit and he's led by the Holy Spirit. And he's led into the wilderness, which means whatever's about to happen is not accidental. Jesus didn't get lost wandering around trying to find some water and then, oh man, I'm in the wilderness. Whatever's about to happen is because he is full of the Holy Spirit and is led by the Holy Spirit into whatever's about to happen in the wilderness. It's really important that we catch this. This isn't accidental. It's not Jesus' fault or whatever. This is because the Holy Spirit led him there and Jesus is, is following his leading, following the Holy Spirit's leading. Next, you have the word the wilderness. Wilderness is an interesting word. If you, you, you could probably spend a lot of time, if you wanted to, those of you who, who, who wanted to do this, you could spend a lot of time just looking at the different meanings and usages of the word wilderness in the Bible. But there's a couple things I want you to catch here. One is the wilderness is the place of new beginnings. It's a place where people would go to retreat from the sin or whatever, the depravity of the world. There's a whole group of people called uh, um, the Essene community that are at this time in Jesus, where they, like, they believe God will rescue them because they've removed themselves and they live out in the city called Qumran, there, there's a belief about God, that God would rescue those people because they were by themselves out in the wilderness, separate from the rest of society. There's this, there's, so there's that reality of the wilderness. The other thing that happens in the wilderness is there's nothing else there. What we know about the wilderness is that it's not full of life. It's not an oasis. It's not teeming with animals and crops. It's a difficult place to be. We know about the wilderness, that this is the place that will be God's staging ground for his victory over the forces of evil. When the book of Isaiah writes about the, this guy, John, who would come before Jesus, he talks about, this, there is a voice that cries out in the wilderness that will make a way for the Lord. We said this a couple weeks ago. Isaiah 51, verse 3, talks about that the deserts will become like Eden. The place in which you will see God, the evidence of God's redeeming work, whatever it is, that powerful work of God, somehow or another will happen in the wilderness, in the desert. And this is, and it will be the victory of God over evil. Now that matters because of what Jesus is about to experience. Uh, verse 2. Full of the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. For, for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end he was very hungry. He was hungry. Now, 
Remember, this is what's bizarre. And there, I should tell you this, by the way. There are going to be questions you're going to have about this particular passage of Scripture. I do not have, I, well, <laughs> I want to be able to say I just don't have time to answer them, but the truth is I don't know the answers. You're going to want me to know the answers and tell you them, and I don't know them. And you're going to go, we're going to talk about this at brunch, and we're not, we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to, this is going to mess with us for a week. I'm okay with that. I just want you to know there are some things in here that are bizarre. One of them is that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. The book of Matthew has the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In other words, there is all kinds of bizarre stuff happening here. Now, the word tempt, in, um, in the, in, this is a word that it literally translates almost more closely to the word test. Now, this is a particularly unique usage of the word because the word test actually has a, has a historical kind of linkage. And it goes all the way back to, to Deuteronomy. It goes back to the people of God wandering in the wilderness. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. I'm going to read that again just so you catch this. Remember how the Lord your God, the book of Deuteronomy is written as the people of Israel have been freed from captivity. They're about to go into the land God promised them. And they're kind of, they're like right there on the footsteps of the promised land. And God says, no, wait, hang on a second. Before you go into this land... Remember how the Lord God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years. To humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, this is, let me just read, let me go back and just read real quickly Luke 4, 1, 2, and 3. Or what, at least Luke 4, 1, 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted or tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Now this is the same thing here. What's being set up here is that Jesus is embodying, personifying all of what, who God's people were or are in this experience in the wilderness he's about to have. God leads them into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit, God leads him into the wilderness to, to be tested or tempted to see what's in the content of his own heart. This is what this is... This is what this test is all about. This will verify what Luke has just said about Jesus. Now, the, the term son of God, we should give you, uh, I should do it this way too. Uh, let me do this. Verse three, I'll just read verse three. Luke four, verse three. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Now this is the ultimate sort of, this is the ultimate part of this test. It's just merely, are you, if you're the son of God. What's being established here is Luke, Luke says, or I'm sorry, the devil says to Jesus, if you're really the son of God, then now we got to test. All of the original audience would have gone, okay, so you've just claimed he's the son of God. you got to prove it. And here comes that test. This is clearly what this is about. The term son of God is used to describe the people of Israel in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible. It is the way all of the nation of Israel is called the son of God. It also is the term used to describe the representative of the people of God in the later years, called, when the, the king was called the son of God. And now you have Jesus being called and being proven to be the Son of God and, and, or, being at, or being asked to prove that he's the Son of God, to verify this reality. And therein is this, is this moment. You're in the wilderness. God's people have been in the wilderness before. They've been freed from captivity. They've been led by God there. And they didn't exactly pass this quote-unquote test of the content of their heart with flying colors. And so Jesus embodies all of this 
reality, the Son of God being tested to reveal what's in his heart. And here's basically what's being asked, is the cost of a compromise. What's being said is, how much would it take, this is what's, what you're about to see is, how much would it take, Jesus, for you to give up on everything? How much would it take for you in some way or another to just give up on this whole idea that you're the Son of God? What would it take for you to compromise all of what that means? You know, I have this, I do this to, from time to time with lots of people. If you're with me long enough, I'll probably do this with you too. But if, you're, if we're walking around and like, for instance, if I saw like a piece of gum on the floor, like stuck there or whatever, I would say to you, how much would it take for you to eat that gum? And you could be like, I'd oh, never, that's disgusting. I, there, no, never. I go, really? If I had unlimited resources, if I had $100,000 right now in my pocket, just right here, a big wad of money, you wouldn't do it? Well, yeah, I'd do it then. Okay, so you have a price. And then we just would see how low people's price would go. And generally, people will eat a piece of gum on the floor for under $500. No question about it. <laughs> they are that, it starts out with, you, you don't have enough money. And then pretty soon, it's like, I'd do it for $500. I'd do it for $100. And pretty soon, you have a bidding war going. And pretty soon, people are like, for $0.35, cents, I'll eat that gum on the floor. I mean, it's like... You have these convictions. How serious are you about them? If I was to ask you, I mean, I, you know, when I was a high school pastor, I always, always try to see if I could get people. To, I, no one ever took me up on it. And I actually stopped them before I would do it. But I'd get, a, you know, some guys and I'd be like, hey, you guys, you know, we're going to whatever. We're going to go to a water park. We're going to go to the beach, whatever. How much would it take for you guys to just wear a Speedo all day today? <laughs> just, you just, you know, I'd never do that, dude. That's, cr- man, that's crazy, dude. You don't even know. I'd never do that. Really? Would you do it for $1,000? You know, like, and then pretty soon it's like, you know, you can just see, I'm like, I'm not, we're not going to do this. But you get, the, and some, of course, some kid be like, I'll just do it for fun. You dare me? Okay, you know, no, don't do it. It's just humiliating. <laughs> but everybody has a price. And what's being expressed here is that, or what's being established here is that the devil is going to figure out the cost of Jesus' compromise here. Luke is, made, Luke is very clear. Jesus is the Son of God person. Well, how in the world does that, really, you've got to prove it. And this, we're going to see how much Jesus actually is willing to hold on to that reality. Because everybody has a price, right? And here's what he says. If you're the Son of God, the devil told him, tell this stone to become bread. Remember, what we know is that Jesus is incredibly hungry. He's been out in the wilderness for 40 days. He's, he's overwhelmed with hunger, as any one of us would be. And then what the, what the devil says to him is, if you're the Son of God, let the stone become bread. Now, you have to know this too. What's being called into question here is something called kinship loyalty. Son of God means you have a responsibility to someone who is your father. And that father is, you know, clearly the father. It's God. Now, it's, it's sort of a, the best way to describe this is like, it, this is sort of the cosmic version of the question, who's your daddy, essentially. I mean, really. Really? Who's, really? Come on, Jesus. Who, who, really, is, who really is your father here? Are you really going to live like this? You know, can, can you be sure that really there's this relationship between you and he? And how much would it take for you, Jesus? To compromise that relationship. To give it up. You have a price. Everybody has a price. If you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Now, 40 days, he's hungry. Now, basically what he's saying is this. You know, if you're the son of God, wouldn't God want you to eat? I mean, really. Who would want his own son to go hungry for 40 days? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't your own father want you to have something to eat? Because we know how hungry you are, aren't you, Jesus? Now, side note, we all know hunger. We know hunger because we had it before Thanksgiving. Now we're kind of regretting how hungry we were before Thanksgiving and now Christmas and all of that that comes with it. But we know hunger. 
We know the seduction of desire. We know the seduction of the appetites that we have in our own lives. And we have at times a ravenous appetite for different things in our hearts. And we have this sense about us that says those appetites must absolutely be satisfied because they're so strong. In fact, a lot of times we think because the appetites within us, our desire for whatever it might be is so strong, it means then therefore we're entitled to them. Because we feel such a strong sense of need for something, we begin to believe that we're supposed to have it, that it's ours to possess. What's being played on here that the devil is trying to get Jesus to go on after is this entitlement. Now, Jesus is the only person who would be entitled to do this stuff, and yet he doesn't, there's this, there's this dialogue here. What are the appetites that demand to be satisfied for us in our world to this day, in this room? Their appetites for pleasure, their appetites for influence, for money, for relationships, their appetites for significance, And the deepest hunger in our lives, the one at our soul level, the one that actually causes us to have grief or anxiety, the one that actually guides and directs our lives, that deepest hunger of our whole lives, the one in our soul, we're longing to fill it up with things that are woefully insufficient. So Jesus says this to the devil. Jesus, fully hungry, wanting for sure to eat, says this in Luke 4, 4. Jesus answered, it's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, what he's saying is, this kind of hunger, this deepest hunger, cannot be met by our own means. There is something that has to be given to us that we cannot give ourselves or take for ourselves. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, if you wanted to understand this encounter between Jesus and the devil here, what's being challenged here is the loyalty of Jesus to his own father. What's being, what's being talked about in Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, is essentially a book about loyalty. To whom do you belong, people of Israel? To whom do you belong, people of God? Where's your loyalty lie? If you want to understand this even better, you could read Deuteronomy 6 through 8 and understand it even better. But I want to give you, there, there's a reason why Jesus keeps quoting Deuteronomy 8. I want to read to you Deuteronomy 8, 3, which is the, this is the whole version of that scripture he quotes from. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, Jesus says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now listen. There again you have this, this, this testing, this experience of hunger. And the remedy for that hunger is only the thing which God can provide. The devil is going to put in front of Jesus all of these kinds of things that he, he ought to have, that he ought to be entitled to. And Jesus says, I, I, I am dying of hunger. But the deepest needs of everyone's soul, my own, are only about what God can provide. No matter how strong the appetites are. Luke 4, verse 5. Then the devil led him up on a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. The term worship, by the way, here doesn't just mean, doesn't mean sort of an inner orientation of the heart, although that's part of it. It literally has the dual purpose of um, orienting one's mind or heart around something, but also the bowing down. Literally, it has the posture of laying down on your face in front of And Satan says, the devil says, look, I got all of the kingdoms of this world. And he knows... 
that he knows that Jesus' mission on the earth is about establishing, inaugurating God's kingdom rule in the world. That it's about kingdoms. And he says, hey, wait a second. All the kingdoms have been given to me. I got all the kingdoms. If you want them, you can have them. In fact, the word he uses for the kingdoms is like the word, the word in Matthew. Matthew's, Matthew's account of this in the wilderness, this sort of wilderness account, has the word just cosmos, which means the whole universe. And he uses a word, Luke uses a word here, to describe just the inhabited world. It means all the people of the world, they're mine, and that you can have them. You just lay down. Now that's really, I mean, Jesus, that's, that's not that different from the kingdom stuff he's already about, except there's a twist here. Worship me. In other words, there's a part of the kingdom work that God's going to do in Jesus that involves this incredibly painful and conflicting and bizarre moment of him dying on the cross. And what's being offered here is you could have all the kingdoms without having to even go through all that stuff. Wouldn't you just want that, Jesus? And notice something. Jesus, when we get to the next verse, Jesus doesn't challenge that the devil has access or power over these things. In fact, he even says in the book of John, he describes Jesus, or he describes, Jesus describes Satan uh, uh, as, about, uh, as about the prince or the ruler of this world. And here's what Jesus says. He doesn't challenge that the devil has access or power to those things or authority to them. He just says this, verse 4-8. Jesus answered, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, remember the book of Deuteronomy, which is Jesus is quoting from, is about the loyalty of God's people to God. And here's what he's, the, the devil is saying, you worship me, I'll give you whatever you want. Don't even worry about all the other stuff that goes with it. I'll just give it to you. Jesus says, no, 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 I, I'm, I only belong to God. Let me show you what that looks like, just in a broader context here. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. When the Lord God gives you, or Lord God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers. Remember, this is God speaking to his own people who are about to take the land he's promised to them. To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, verse 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths only in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. The whole emphasis, remember, what we have is this mirroring of God's people in the wilderness and Jesus in the wilderness here. The whole emphasis here is on the loyalty of God's people to himself. And Jesus says, I don't care what you offer me. It's not a good enough price. It, it doesn't matter how much you can offer me. The only person I belong to and the only one who I worship is God. I can't, there is no reason for me to shortcut what actually God wants to do in me, and I won't do it. For us, we have in various ways, in the ways that are sort of whatever are whispered into our own hearts, we have moments, we have the experience at times where we go, there would be an easier way to do this that may compromise my integrity, that may cause me to do some things, whether it's in business or in school or in relationship, whatever it is, there is a way for me to get myself where I need to be and it would be so much easier than the path that's ahead of me and so I'd rather take that. To whom do you belong? Is the question. To whom do you belong? And Jesus has this other encounter. This is the last of, of three sort of challenges. By the way, I read this 
and I don't know if it's true, it just it seems to make sense to me. But I read this this week, that in, in the ancient world, whenever you have a, a, a quest of some kind, whether it's in Greek mythology, or it's in all kinds of other, whatever it might be, or in, in, in anything, Roman mythology, you always have that a hero will always be tested by at least three trials to verify that they're actually as awesome as they are. And here is the third of that test, right here. This, that was interesting. Here it is, um, verse, verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Let me stop right there. Up until this point, the person who's been saying that phrase, it is written, has been Jesus. Over and over again. It's written, it is written, it is written. It's one of the reasons why we actually believe that reading God's word throughout the entire year this year will actually change your life because when you can acknowledge that it is written some way, in some way or another, it does something to your heart. Now, in this case... The person saying it is written in a bizarre twist in our third challenge here is the devil. And he says this. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, what we think in our head, Jesus, it's Satan right here, we think Jesus is going to, whatever he's going to say, well, that's not true, you're, you're misquoting the scripture or whatever. Because we imagine if Satan's going to be quoting the scripture, he's going to be making it up. It's going to be some fake version of the Bible that's some bizarre take on it. It's some weird leaving out of, you know, it's, it's just this, he quotes Psalm 9111. Why don't you just, here's, here's Psalm 9111 and 12 right here on the screen. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's the only difference. Versus carefully or in all your ways. That's the only difference. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike a foot against a stone. They're identical. So now we're in this situation where Satan is using scripture to try and tempt Jesus. Now I could do a whole, I feel like I could do a whole message just in this idea here. Because what Satan has done is he's extracted a piece of scripture and made it apply in a place to which it doesn't belong, leaving from it the context from which it comes. Let me do this again. What I want to do is I want to read you just three verses more of that scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 91, telling Jesus, you're entitled to throw yourself, you're entitled to do whatever you want. You're the son of God. And don't you want to know if you really are? I mean, really. Because if you throw yourself off here and you don't get saved, I mean, don't get rescued by the angels, well then, you know, well then you're dead. But I mean, you know, you weren't the son of God anyway. And aren't you really, don't you really want to know if God would rescue you? Because you kind of have a little bit of doubt, don't you? I mean, just trying to plant all these things in Jesus' mind. Here's the actual, here's just a couple of verses earlier than what Satan quoted. Here it is, in Psalm 91, verse 9. Listen to this. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High, meaning God, your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. In other words, if you say with conviction in your own heart that I belong to God and he's the only one who can rescue me, then he'll rescue you. But you can't, just, you can't have a rescuing power of God in your life in the same way. Now, God does miraculous things all the time. Bear with me. But you, we, we tend to want this idea where God would do for us, bless, be a part of, in, in somehow invade us only when we really want him to be there for the rescuing power, but that he wouldn't really be a part of the rest of our lives. Because what Satan is saying here is, you can be rescued, but don't have God as part of it at all. For us, in our own lives, at least this is true of me, we want God's protection, we want his goodness, but we want him to kind of leave, kind of get out of the mess of our, we don't really want him too involved in our lives. We want him to swoop in, 
save the day and ride off into the sunset. Thank you so much for your help. You've been great. It's been great knowing you. I'll call you when I need you again. What Jesus is saying is, Satan, you've kind of left out a critical piece here. Again, it's about belonging to God. Here's what he quotes. He, here's how he responds. Uh, in, from uh, verse 12. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. And I want to just read you the context for this too. Verse 16 says this, Deuteronomy 6, 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massah. Massah is a place where the Israelites are like, God, you're supposed to give us water. Give us water. They start demanding stuff and trying to see if he's really, are you really the God who rescues us? I mean, this is like in Exodus. They're just out of, the, out of captivity. It's like, God, prove to yourself. Prove us to your, and it's like, God's like, I don't really need to prove to you that. I'm God. I rescued you from captivity. That's enough. I give you what you need. Now, that's kind of the deal. Verse 17, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight that, so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land God promised, or the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all the enemies before you, as the Lord said. Now, in the future, this is critical, in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of these stipulations, decrees, and the laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him this. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, all of the stuff that we follow, our obedience, all it does is it points to the way in which we've been freed. When your son asks, why do we have to follow all these things and do all this stuff? What you say is, it's because these are the ways in which God's people live as free people. God is a God who rescues people from captivity and brings them into freedom. These stipulations that we're following now, son, are about us belonging in that freedom. That's what it's about. You see, Jesus says, don't put the Lord to the test. We already belong to him. Faith isn't a tool to try to manipulate God. Faith is the way in which we respond to the freedom that God's already given to us. Jesus has stared down the devil in the most profound ways. The way in which there's this outrageous claim that Luke makes about Jesus, that he's the son of God, this human being who's the son of God, which how do those two things work together? I do not know exactly but this is what's been said. And the way in which we verify before he does anything else about miracles, about healings, about whatever else he's going to do, the way it starts is this embodying of the loyalty of God's people to God. That's who Jesus is. He belongs to God. The proof of his kinship loyalty to God is about this moment of going through the testing of stuff. And then verse 13. The devil finished all this tempting. He left him until an opportune time. Like, okay, I've had enough of this. I'm kind of bored trying to get you to do, you, clearly you do not have a price that I, I can, I, you don't have. And then it just says that he is waiting for an opportune time. Meaning, he's not going to leave him alone. Like, well, the victory is won, everything's gone. We're all, it's like, I'm going to keep coming back for you. When you're at your weakest. When there's the most at stake, when, you're, when everything's bearing down upon you, that's when I'm going to show up and I'm going to actually just make sure there's a, an op, I'm going to seize that moment to really see what's in your heart, Jesus. You passed test number one, but we're going to see what happens later on. Now, for us. The implications of Jesus being the Son of God, the implications of all of what that means are about to be unfolded in this Gospel of Luke, this account of Jesus' life and ministry, which we're not going to get to right now. 
But over the subsequent, you're going to see like now here's what this means. If this is actually true, then here's what this means. And there's so much in this particular passage. I mean, obviously, you already had to kind of drink from the fire hose today with all this stuff I gave you. I get it. But I, I want to give us a sense, too, here. I can't explain everything that happens in here, but I can give you, give you at least this idea. That it is the testing of our hearts that reveals the content of them. When we talk about temptation, we talk about this kind of stuff, which every one of us faces in every single day, in every way of our lives. It is the testing of our own hearts that reveals the content that is in them. Someone once asked me, they said, let me, they said, let me, let me share with you the scariest prayer I ever prayed. And I was like, <laughs> I'd rather you didn't. And he's like, I pray, and it was, I, and this, is a, this is a guy who's you know, much older than me, he's been walking with Jesus a lot longer than me, and I'm like, okay, tell me what it is. And he goes, well, I prayed this prayer. God, reveal to me what is in my own heart. I'm like, and then what else did you say? And he's like, no, that's it. And I think what he's getting at is this idea right here. That in some way or another, what's in your own heart cannot be revealed when everything's awesome. I, um, I, you know, I, I think about it just as a parent. You know, when my kids, uh, you know, when we have the, the, the moment where everybody agrees in the van about what song we should be listening to, and everybody can also agree whether or not we're going to Chick-fil-A or in and out at the same time, and there's no, no one's too tired, and no one's had too much sugar, or, you know, whatever else it is, or, you know, he hit me, or no hair pull. There's those moments where it's like, it's, we might as well be Julie Andrews, and, the, you know, the hills are alive. I'm like, my children are awesome. I'm the most patient father ever. Watch me, everybody, learn how to be a father. Like that's, I mean, there's those moments. But that doesn't tell me anybody anything. That's like 1% of the time in my family, right? Where it's like everybody's getting along, everything's perfect. The test of my own, my own parenting, my own ability to be patient. I believe that I have the world's longest fuse of it. I just have so much patience for my kids when we're all agreeing on stuff. Oh, man, I'm just a wonderful father. And the moment something goes just a tiny bit wrong, we hit traffic. There's a, um, one kid, you know, falls and it hurts, I mean, hurts themselves in an insignificant way, but they scream and yell like they've got their arm cut off. You're like, oh my, lighten up. It's just, you, you know, my, my son, my youngest is like every tiny scratch, he inspects his body every day. Ah, oh, I need a Band-Aid. Is it bad? I need, Dad, is there blood? Do you see blood? I'm like, you're going to be fine. Is there blood? Is there? And it's like, oh my gosh. Now all of a sudden I'm, you know, we have to go, we have to get a Band-Aid. Not that one, I want the Mickey Mouse one. Okay, take that one. You know, it's like, this is what we do all the time. And at that moment, I'm like, everybody. Quiet down. I don't care about your cut. We're not going to Del, we're going to Del Taco, not Chick-fil-A or in and out. Everybody get in the car. You know, shh. All of a sudden, I have this, like, I am angry at my kids for them being children. Now, in my life, I am praying all the time, God, shape me into the father that you would want me to be. Shape me into the father that you want me to be for my own children. Shame me to be the kind of father that my own kids will want to grow up and tell great stories about. Not, I remember when we used to get, my dad used to get all upset because I wanted a Band-Aid. I mean, I don't want that story told. It's going to be told. Ugh. I want my kids to watch the way that I, that I am with my, my wife, Amanda. I want them to see me and Amanda and go, I want that for my life. I want that to happen. I want their friends to come over to our house when they're playing at our house and being at our house. I want them to look at my life and Amanda's life and our family and go, well, my family might not have been perfect and theirs certainly isn't either, but I like the way that they love each other. I want that. And yet when I'm encountering the temptation to just freak out, to explode, to blow up, how often more I do it than I think that I actually am. I mean, I think I'm like, man, I'm, I got this, and I don't. 
I think about the way in which I'm, I'm tempted to things that are in the broader spectrum of my life. I think about the things that encompass all of what we worry about. About how are we going to pay for stuff? About am I really getting everything I'm entitled to in my life? And how do I get that? We encounter people in our lives. I have, you know, friends who's, you know, you all have this as well. You have friends, and maybe it's even your own marriage. But you, you watch marriages falling apart, people running away from each other, and you're going, that's a time of testing. And people in this room, even as we were praying as the staff beforehand, volunteers and stuff, were praying. people are praying for people who are sick, physically ill, who are in chemo, you know, chemotherapy treatments, who are in surgery, who are experiencing pain of their own children and their own lives, and they go, I wonder now, and this is the time when you go, what is the content of your own heart? And the scariest and saddest thing for us is, we wish there was another way the content of our heart could be revealed. But seemingly the way that it is most often revealed, what we get exposed in our own lives is in testing. Testing. I mean, really, if you had to sum up what temptation is all about, all of this whole conversation, it's about loyalty. Temptation is about loyalty. It's about trying to draw your loyalty from the thing to which you belong into something else to keep, to make it your new master. That's all that that is. That's all that that is. Is anger your master? Is your schedule your master? Is your own need for significance your master? The appetites of our own hunger, whatever the hunger might be, is that your master? That's all temptation is. It is a challenge to our own loyalty and it is revealing what is in the content of our own hearts. So, what is in your own heart? How is it presently being revealed? How has it been in the past? Maybe even you could point back to the past two weeks of being with your family who you love. You're so glad they went home. Some of them are still sitting next to you. You didn't laugh at that. It's okay. But maybe you had some moments come up with your own family where you think, oh my gosh, my own, the content of my own heart was so revealed and it was not pretty. And then secondly, part of that question goes with this is, to whom or what do you belong? Who already has your loyalty? I mean, what is it the thing that, it, you, you know, if it's the thing that you, you think about the most, the thing that you worry about the most. It, I mean, one of the ways you could actually test this is to look at your own, the search history you have in your, like whatever your Google search bar is. Don't, you know, go look at what you've been looking at. Just see what it is that you're occupied with the most. Not all of it's going to be bad, but it's just going to give you a sense of your own focus. What have you been looking at? What are you thinking about? What is it that has, has captured your heart and your mind? To whom or what do you belong? What is the content of your own heart? I want you to close your eyes for a moment and we're going to get a chance to respond together. Just as your eyes are closed, it's kind of one of the ways we typically respond is this moment to consider what God might reveal in your own heart. Even as we're sitting here, that there is some way for some of you a, a challenge to your own heart saying, what is it that God is showing me in my life that I don't want to know is there? That I've been pretending that it's not there, that I'm pretending it's like not really an issue, that I've been thinking in my own life, it doesn't really matter, but it's eating away at my soul. What is that thing? 
You may be walking in here, you already knew it. You knew what you knew in some way. You were hoping I wasn't going to say anything or give you a moment to consider some of this stuff because you know it would come up. And now God's calling attention to it. What does the content of your own heart look like? If you're so bold enough as to pray it, might you consider the prayer, God, reveal to me the content of my own heart. And then for the, for the other half of that question, the side of that question then, what is it that already has a hold, a grip on your life? What is it that you, to which you already belong? Is it an idea, a habit, a fantasy? Is it an unrealistic, magical thought about future, about hope, about whatever it might be? Is it a, is it a secret? Is it a desire, an appetite that is governing the way in which you live your life? Is it something other than the loyalty God calls us to himself? Father, we're so grateful that you would receive us. People who have not mastered victory over temptation, but who long to be set free, who would establish and know and recognize the relationship we have with you that you might give to us freedom that we might experience life and wholeness instead of fear and anxiety. Father, we're grateful that you have endured all of this temptation knowing what it's like to be us. That we might cry out to you and you might go, I know, I know, I know. Help us, Father, to be let go from those things, to let go from those things to which we belong, to be filled by you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.